Hello, and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, a podcast from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I'm your host, Mia Lobel. Today, we'll speak with Robert Merton, co-editor of the Annual Review of Financial Economics. Merton has made several game-changing contributions to the field of financial economics, including his work on the Black-Scholes Options Pricing Model, for which he was jointly awarded the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences in 1997. Merton is a member of the National Academy of Sciences, a fellow of the American Academy of the Arts and Sciences, and serves on the board of directors of numerous public and private institutions. He is Professor Emeritus at Harvard University and recently joined the faculty at the Sloan School of Management at MIT. Professor Merton, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's my great pleasure to be here. Now, you started out studying mathematics. What drew you to economics and, more specifically, to finance? Well, to be precise, actually, I started out studying engineering mathematics, and uh, I'm an engineer by mindset, and I love using mathematics to solve real-world problems. Uh, My switch to economics was in part motivated because I had been involved in markets, uh, stock markets, from a very young age. Uh, As a side side, uh, activity, um, but principally the, the, the reason I switched to it was that I was inspired uh, actually by Walter Heller and the Council of Economic Advisors many decades ago, uh, where they made progress in macroeconomics, which seemed to have uh, had the impact of reducing the risks of uh, deep recessions or even depressions and uh, runaway inflations. And the idea that you could be involved in an activity where if you could make some contribution, even a rather small one, if it influenced very large numbers of people, perhaps millions of people, for a considerable period of time, that seemed like a pretty attractive thing to be able to really address real-world issues that really mattered to a lot of people. Now, as respect to finance, uh, as I mentioned, partly it's due to my, my interest in markets and so forth, but the other is, if you look at the field of finance, it's really, it's about the allocation of resources through time, under uncertainty, dealing with risk. Uh, And so the intellectual challenge of combining, uh, making decisions over long time horizons in highly uncertain environments uh, was quite attractive. Indeed, some of the the most beautiful applications of probability and optimization theory can be found in uh, finance and finance uh, model solutions. The other part that was very attractive, going back to my engineering uh, desires, is that while these were intellectually challenging, they also turned out that these uh, mathematical models that were developed uh, became an important part of the mainstream of finance practice. So I had both my cake and eat it too, intellectually challenging and practical uh, implications. So the conjoining of the intrinsic intellectual interest with the extrinsic application was extremely attractive to me. Let's talk about mathematical models. How do you take an academic model and put it to practice in the real world? Models, whether they be academic, accounting, regulatory, quantitative, or even the simple models we have in our heads, are all abstractions from the complex reality of the real world and, as a consequence, are incomplete. So in designing models, uh, there's a kind of art to the science, which is making the judgment as to what abstractions to make from complex reality, uh, 
to build into the model, to make it tractable on the one hand, and at the same time to have the output of the model be relevant and useful for uh, application in the real world. And there's really no formula for doing that. It's a matter of judgment and experience. And of course, after you've built the model and applied it to see if there's empirical validation of it. Uh, that said, uh, of course, one must always know the limits of the models and understand the risks in using them. Um, you, you mentioned risk. Many attribute the current economic crisis to the breakdown of financial models. How do you respond to that? Well, in terms of the current financial crisis, uh, when we find all the data and find out what's happening, and I would underscore, at least to my knowledge, we don't know all the causes of the current crisis, but we can be assured it won't be a single item or two items. It'll be multifarious factors. One of the factors may be the misapplication of models, uh, either too much dependence or wrong models or wrong use of models. Uh, what's essential to the evaluation of the uses of models is that you can't assess models in the abstract by themselves. They must always be judged in the context of who's using them and in what application. And that the, you can have simple, relatively simple models which by themselves would not be very effective, but combined with an experienced user who's applying the model within its limits can be a very effective. On the other hand, you can have a more complex model, which by itself would be better than a simple model. But if it's the user of that model is not knowledgeable of it, does not know how to apply it properly or know its limits, the results can be a mess. Um, that would certainly be true to the extent that models are involved in the crisis here, which they clearly would. I should mention, however, that the models uh, are essential to the operation of our financial system. Today, there's no major financial institution in the world, and that includes all the central banks and the Federal Reserve, uh, that can function without the use of computer mathematical models of the financial system and the myriad of derivative securities, which are used both to transfer risks and to extract information from their prices about risks. And so it's an integral part of our financial system. Therefore, the elements that we have to consider are how do we judge the user in combination with the model and how do we set rules and oversight to do that? Now, there, there are probably a couple of things that will come out of this, I'm quite confident, which are that we need more, not fewer, well-trained, I would call them financial engineers or people who have a deep uh, understanding of the models and their applications in, in the financial system, uh, particularly in terms of uh, knowledge base for senior managements, uh, boards of directors of financial institutions, and the regulators, the overseers of these systems. If they're going to oversee and lead and uh, control these, uh, this system, they need to understand what they're dealing with. It would be a little bit like if you had someone as the head of the FDA or the head of the National Institutes of Health, and if that person didn't understand nanotechnologies, um, it would make no sense to say, we're not going to have nanotechnologies in medicine because the head doesn't understand it, 
what we would say is that the head better either come to understand it or we should replace that head with someone who does. And so one of the big things that will come out of the crisis on this is education and training and the need for people to understand these models and their applications who are in positions of oversight. Um, one suggestion, which I think is an actual good one that can be done uh, along these lines, is to create something into the kin of the National Transportation Safety Board, but instead of for, that's for uh, airplanes and uh, trains, uh, this would be for the financial system, in which whenever there's a failure in the financial system, failure of a single bank, failure of a hedge fund, failure of a brokerage house, a forensic team, highly trained, comes in and uh, examines what happened, and as with air crashes, uh, reassembles or determines what were the causes of the failure. After determining those causes, they then write up recommendations for changes as a result of what was learned from this forensic analysis. As it stands now, nothing close to that is what's being done. So whether it's the evaluation of models or evaluation of processes or the users of models, uh, at the current time, it's just, it's, it's just not, that's not here, and that's something we very much need. That's very interesting. I, I've, you know, there's a lot of talk about who's working to make this situation better and who's figuring out what's wrong, and it sounds like you, you have in mind a whole new field. Forensic economics, is that <laughs> what you would call it? Well, it's not so much forensic economics as a new field. It's, it's the application of modern finance science by people who are trained uh, in, in the field to be able to uh, assess what's going on. Indeed, uh, the kinds of people who can do this already are out there and, and exist in, principally in institutions and some uh, research firms and as well as in academe. Uh, but the issue is bringing them to bear in an agency whose job it is to and has the power to do to go in and investigate failures and learn from it and organize the data and make recommendations. Uh, in terms of looking to the long run in the field of finance, I'm highly optimistic about uh, the opportunities in the field, despite what you may hear in the press from time to time about uh, uh, you know, the needs or lack of needs uh, going forward for such, which is that this complexity and the value created by the modern financial systems, including both the modeling and the innovations and the, and the new securities created, require even more well-trained people. And this is a global issue. It isn't just the United States or the UK or even continental Europe. It's truly global need. And so I see this as a, uh, actually causing a greater need for people trained in finance and financial, uh, quantitative financial analysis. I would think that the mortgage brokers and the servicers and the people who were giving out the loans that in one way or another led to the mortgage crisis, that they are well trained in what they do and that they were following the models that would lead to their own personal success. And no one really had liability for the big picture. Can you explain a little bit how that might have happened? In the financial crisis uh, that occurred, uh, again, it's, it's a matter of there are many facets to it. There were certainly plenty of incompetent people. 
there were certainly plenty of people who behaved unethically and perhaps even in some cases illegally. Um, and so there are a lot of bad actors, plenty of fools and knaves in this. And we should address that. So let me be clear about that at the outset. But we'd be making a very big mistake if we believe that all of what has happened to us is principally the result of bad actors or incompetent people. Many of the results that happen would have happened and can happen in an environment of a very well-trained, well-functioning, well-behaved set of, of uh, participants because of structural risks that are inherent in the financial system. And we have to understand what those are. It is not always the case that the individuals who are handling mortgages or doing the sales and so forth are highly well enough trained. But more importantly, even if they are, they, they are only a small part of a much larger system. You really need to have the senior managements and the boards whose role or function is to, as an outside overseer of the institution, to question at the highest levels how uh, risk is being managed there, how business is being conducted. If that board, those board members, are not competent in the sense of knowledgeable of the technologies and techniques that are being used, it's very difficult to see where they would have the ability to question what was going on and, and when they don't understand what's going on to pursue actions such as bringing in outside evaluators to make sure that they do understand. And sadly, much the same holds for the regulators of the institutions. In many cases, they too didn't fully understand all the techniques and technologies being used. Is that the only answer as to a cause of what happened? Of course not. But I'm saying that is something we clearly have to do something about. Uh, I've done work with the colleagues at MIT in which we studied the impact of rather benign processes, actually three of them, each by themselves being not only benign, perhaps most people would say good things, but when you combine these three benign processes together, you create a large systemic risk event. And this was in the mortgage market, and it was in conjunction with the three events being in the, latter, in the last 10 years, we've had residential housing prices was rising at least up until the peak in 2006. We had interest rates falling due to the Fed actions uh, as a result of first the dot bomb period and then sadly 9-11 and uh, fears of recession. Uh, the third was that we had a great improvement in the efficiency of mortgage refinancing, which taken by itself, I think, would get the applauds of a consumer protection agency of the kind that we're going to produce. Finally, something was produced that was useful for consumers in the sense that it vastly reduces the cost of their refinancing their mortgages and that they take advantage of their rights to be able to refinance. So each of these three events that happen, or three processes, are all seen to be reasonably good things, things certainly we wouldn't think is bad behavior. But it turns out when you combine these three, you create an event in the mortgage market in which uh, mortgages are very vulnerable to declines in residential housing. And as we know what happened, whatever the causes, 
residential housing fell and fell rather dramatically in the United States from June of about June of 2006 uh, through the current time but certainly through uh, the end of December 2008 and we estimate that just from this phenomenon uh, mortgages could lose up to one and a half trillion dollars uh, of value during that period now that's an enormous loss that's 10 percent more than 10 percent of the gross domestic product of the United States you can have that phenomenon happen without any bad players. So we need to understand that there are structural risks that we have to monitor and control for that have nothing to do with bad actors, bad behaviors, or even bad models. Again, that said, what we do need is to have better trained, better educated overseers, and of course, if, um, testing and evaluation of the models that are used. And that can only be done within the context of how the models and the users of the models and the application of the models are all put together. They can't be tested separately. You cannot say this is a good model in the abstract. There's no such thing. And at what point do you think would those overseers need to step in in order to prevent a similar crisis from happening in the future? Well, overseers are part of, an, of the overall system. Uh, the idea, that, you know, I think sometimes we're a bit unfair to our uh, to our overseer regulators. Every time we have a difficult problem, and we've had many of them, the answer seems to be, well, we'll have to get our regulators to look after and solve that. And the difficulty is, is that regulators, like the rest of the industry, are human beings. They have limited resources and limited knowledge. It isn't as though there's some deus ex machina that can just simply um, know all that's going to happen. That said, we certainly need to have a revisions and, and, and improvements to the uh, regulatory uh, practices. Certainly they, they did fail in a number of places. I'm not so clear that the answer is to have more regulations passed or very wide sweeping ones, but rather to take existing ones to make rather targeted improvements and make sure that the regulators have both the resources, including the right people, to perform their functions. If you don't have the right people, if they don't have the right training to, to perform the roles we're now going to ask of them, they won't be able to do it and we'll be in for another disappointment. The other thing I think I need to mention is that no matter what we do, we will have crises in the future. Why do I say that? Because safety is not the only thing that we all operate on. If we are only concerned with our safety, we would all stay in our beds at home and never venture out, which, of course, we don't do. So everything is a trade-off, the trade-off between risk and benefits of taking that risk. So we should understand that we should always want to improve practice and improve the way we do it, but we will not get rid of crises in the futures. So we can address a problem that we've seen in the past, but typically crises come in, in different ways and different uh, uh, sizes that we hadn't anticipated. Let's look beyond this current economic crisis to a time of relative calm, ideally before the next crisis. Uh, what does the future of financial economics look like to you? Well, uh, the financial crisis has pushed off the front page, if you take that as a metaphor, 
some very big uh, challenges that we face on a global basis that need to be solved, uh, financial issues, such as how do we fund retirement for all the retirees, not just in the United States or in Europe or England, but around the world. How are we going to solve the retirement problem? How are we going to fund it? Uh, this problem hasn't gone away, and if anything, may have been even become uh, bigger as a result of the crisis. To do that, we're going to need to bring to bear all the financial knowledge we have, the science, the market-proven technologies, and the tools to come up with solutions to these challenges. Now, I'm a bit of an optimist in that I view these challenges as opportunities to make contributions, to create these solutions, and in the end, have people better off. Indeed, that's the thing that drove me into the field more than four decades ago. And in particular now, when uh, many of my colleagues are thinking about retirement, I just started a new commercial activity to try to develop the next generation retirement solution system, which I'm engaged in building and, and going forward. But whether I'm successful or not, the opportunity there is huge, and we're going to need all the finance science to do it. So um, I see a, a very important role there. Uh, another dimension that uh, interests me uh, for the future is uh, the idea of being able to manage whole countries' risks. We've been managing risks of individuals, households, firms, institutions, but we can also manage whole country risks. Now, this isn't some sort of uh, uh, mad scientist in a, in a laboratory dreaming about something in the future. I'm saying that the uh, tools needed to, to implement important uh, improvements in country risk management already exist in the form of market-proven technologies. They haven't been applied in this way. So implementation here is not a matter of science. Implementation is really a matter of engineering. It's a very big, challenging uh, 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 problem, but it's one for which we have the existing tools to do it. And the payoff can be great, particularly for smaller countries and emerging market and developing countries. And it's, there are a couple of well-known uh, tenets in economics that are in conflict uh, and which we can do something about if we can manage country risk. One is the notion of pursue comparative advantage. The advice economists always give uh, to countries is focus on producing that which you have a comparative advantage in doing, such as Chile, who uh, for some reason the trees in Chile grow twice as fast as they do in northern uh, Europe. And that's obviously a comparative advantage if you're in the paper, the forestry and paper and pulp business. So you pursue your comparative advantages, but what does that mean? That means that you concentrate, for a small country, it means you would concentrate in a relatively small number of activities probably related to one another. Now there's another tenet which says efficiently, efficient diversification. Diversify your risk. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. So what does that tell you to do? It tells you to invest in many, many different things, preferably things that aren't highly related to one another, so that you diversify the risk more efficiency. Now both of these tenets are good rules. The problem is they appear to be in conflict. 
One tells you to concentrate, the other one says spread out. So how does one address that? It's a trade-off. What modern financial science can do with market-proven technologies is bring means of transferring risks for countries so that they can, on the one hand, pursue comparative advantage, and on the other, diversify their risks to their population. There are a variety of ways of doing this, uh, which would take much more time than we have to go through, but it's very exciting when you look at the potential that this kind of work can have uh, very, very, very crudely. Um, if you look at the last 30 years of the 20th century and you measure the performance of, let's say, emerging market equities versus the best diversified mix of uh, investments, which uh, would be roughly investing in the world portfolio, uh, which is till we go to Mars or Venus, the most we can do, buy something of everything, um, we will see that for those 30 years, had develop the emerging market countries been able to find a way to efficiently and effectively diversify their risk while pursuing their comparative advantage, they could have added a significant amount of return to their long-term growth. Orders of magnitude at the extreme would be anywhere from two to four times the growth over a 30-year period, which is enormous. Now, I'm not saying that's what will happen going forward with this, but it's rather used to scale it for you to see that proper risk diversification done in a fashion that permits the continuation of pursuit of comparative advantage offers not just greater safety for their populations, but the opportunities for much higher growth and development. And pulling that off would be, for the world, I think, a wonderful thing. And these are some of the, these are just a couple of what I see are exciting and important uh, potential contributions from finance science and the, its application. You did some of your earliest research on individual portfolio balance. Does it feel like you're coming full circle in your career? Well, in a certain way, yes. Uh, it's always been a part of my research interest in solving the problem of how one uh, manages your resources in order to uh, have the best you can get out of your lifetime of consumption and, and work. And, and that's an ongoing part of my life. Now, the application of that in practice to retirement, which I'm engaged in now, is really a matter of uh, applying something I've worked long on, but doing it at the right time. And what I mean by that is in, in my, I've had the great good fortune in my long uh, many years in the field to both uh, do academic research but also to apply it. And if someone asked me, um, what are the three most important uh, elements to success, commercial success, with an idea such as a retirement solution, my answer would be need, need, and need. That if you design the best system in the world but there's no need for it, you're wasting your time in terms of spending it on trying to commercialize it. What's happened, and I need to take a little background here, what's happened is that the retirement system, as we use it certainly in uh, Western economies, um, has largely been built on a, metaphorically a three-legged stool which is supposed to be stable. Part of retirement comes from government in the United States Social Security. 
apart from employer-provided pension plans from one's employer, and the third from personal saving. A big change that just that has taken place in the last 10 years uh, is that in the employer-provided employer part of that, so-called corporate pension plans, um, it used to be provided by what we call defined benefit plans, which were simply said that if you worked for the company for your life, when you retired, you'd receive an income for the rest of your life, commensurate, one would hope, with Social Security and some personal saving to allow you to sustain the standard of living you enjoyed during your work life. Uh, it was simple to use. Uh, you didn't have to know anything about it. Unfortunately, that system has broken down. It turned out to be far more expensive than companies realized, and they're no longer doing it. That's just a fact. So by 2006 in the United States, many corporations, such even the IBM, a highly employee-centric company, had ceased to provide this kind of retirement benefit. And employers still need to provide these benefits, so by default they shifted to what we've called defined contribution plans. Many of you will know it as 401ks or other elements. They have the feature that it, what you do is you, you, the company makes contributions into your pension to be invested over your work life and you get at the end of that whatever those investments produce. Now that seems like okay that's what we've been doing. Well no because what we're now asking people to do is solve a very complex optimization problem. That problem is that if I want to have enough money so that I can enjoy a standard of living in my retirement of the kind I enjoyed in the latter part of my work life. And let's say I'm 35 years old now. That's 30 years or more from now. How do I solve this complicated problem of investing monies that are contributed in such a fashion to end up with that result? Even for professionals, this is challenging. Now, I don't care if you're a brain surgeon, a professor, an auto assembly line worker. Um, the idea that we're going to solve that, any of those people are going to solve that problem effectively, doesn't seem, seems to me rather remote. And even if they had the skill set, most people don't like doing this kind of financial analysis and planning. So there's a void. And what I've been working on is trying to design something that works within a structure that's acceptable to employers, because if employers won't do it, it's not a solution such that it provides uh, the kind of benefit in retirement that people want and need without requiring them to be experts, without requiring them to take the time to figure out what they ought to be in and not, without taking the time to try to educate themselves on complex uh, financial decision making. And so at the core of it is to try to uh, marry the simplicity of a system which is easy to use, does not require uh, intervention or activities by the individual person, but at the same time allows them to achieve the goal that most want to have in retirement. So that's, that's at the core of what it is that I've developed and, and begun to install, not yet in the United States, but in Holland, uh, Germany, and the UK. One final question. Um, there was a line in the preface to the annual review of financial economics 
uh, that said the rapid adoption of the Black-Scholes model was all the more surprising because the mathematics used in the model were not part of the standard mathematical training of economists, either academic or practitioner. What can current students of financial economics learn from that? The idea that uh, you know, I, I, I think I'm generally credited as having bringing the, this, this sort of odd mathematics into, into this application. Um, but the lesson to be learned is I, I think one should start with what, are you, what is the problem you're trying to solve? What is it that you're, you're, you're you know, trying to solve? And you attack the problem. And then you discover in trying to solve it that you need something to help you to solve it. In, this, in my case, it was I needed a particular kind of mathematics that I didn't know if it existed or not, which would allow me to analyze and solve the problem that I wanted to attack. And I happened to find it. Well, what's the lesson? Don't be constrained by the tools that you are traditionally used. Yes, it's important to learn them, and often they will be the right tools. But recognize that if you're going to be innovative, if you're going to solve new problems and big problems, it may be necessary to move out of the realm of the norms of training and, and uh, tools that uh, have been used in that profession. So you need to be open-minded enough to be prepared, if necessary, to go and learn uh, and discover uh, these tools from uh, quite another, a different place. And, and not, not so early in the analysis to give up and compromise and say, I only have a hammer or a saw. You know, maybe a drill would be the right solution if you can find one. Dr. Merton, thank you so much for your time today. Okay, my pleasure. You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio. For over 75 years, Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Mia Lobel. Thanks for listening.